Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We are at a moment in time when dystopian science fiction stories feel like they are everywhere. George Orwell's 1984 has been a consistent bestseller over the last year. A TV version of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale has been lauded by critics and by fans. Thinking about alternative worlds is something that Cory Doctorow has been doing for decades, and he thinks it's crucial that we do it more. Doctorow is a co-editor of the website Boing Boing and a science fiction writer. His latest novel is Walk Away, which pushes income inequality into a future that sometimes seems out there and sometimes seems closer to reality than we might like to think. And he says he's always looked at the service that science fiction offers us this way. You know, ideas for what to do if the future turns out in different ways, like how to live your life in different kinds of futures, not a, not a prediction. And, you know, Arthur Clarke said, uh, if an elderly distinguished scientist tells you something is possible, they're probably right. If they tell you something is impossible, they're probably wrong. And that really does cover science fiction writers. A lot of what science fiction writers said might happen with our technology and our social relations to it did, did in fact, come true. Like what? Oh, well, so Gardner Dozois said, you know, the job of a science fiction writer is to imagine the movie theater and the automobile and invent not just the drive-in, but predict the sexual revolution. Mm. And I think that by the time Gardner said that, some of us were looking at that and going, well, actually, you know, maybe the major effect of all that was that to participate in the sexual revolution, you had to carry government identity papers because you needed a driver's license. And before that, nobody in America carried papers. It was such a, it was like the thing that you used as a shorthand for totalitarian government, your papers, please. Right. right? And all of a sudden, everyone was carrying papers. Well, now we live in the society where like the management and tracking of your identity has become one of the central motifs of, of governance. And maybe that's the thing that that happened. And you see inklings of it around the edges. So William Gibson, you know, didn't know a lot about computers when he wrote Neuromancer in 1984, but he had become a keen observer of how corporations and the state were merging to create systems of control that were based both on the stick of surveillance and uh, heavy-duty policing and the carrot of entertainment. You know, I, I call it being Huxley into the full Orwell. So uh, let's talk about predicting the future, which is hard to do, um, but it's obviously something you think about. Uh, But one of the trickiest things, I think, about predicting the future is that the things that are really going to change, um, they're often like social mores. You know, we think about, oh, the future is going to be about flying cars or spaceships. Maybe. And those things are easy to imagine. But in reality, what has it been? It's been like the role of women or the kinds of societies that we build that are just completely different. Um, I mean, and that kind of stuff was hard to imagine 50 years ago. Yeah. And this is a thing that comes up a lot in the privacy debate. You know, people say I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in like in my, not quite in my living memory, but in my parents' living memory, it was illegal for black people and white people to get married and their children were illegal. Right. It was illegal to be gay. Mm-hmm. It was a felony to be gay. Um, it was illegal to smoke weed, which is very quickly becoming legal. Uh, the, the role of women, as you say, radically transformed. And women who believed that it should be transformed were viewed with with suspicion and they were ostracized. And the way that we got all this social change was by people being able to choose the time and manner of their disclosure, to be able to find the people around them who might work on this project with them, to gradually according to their own view about who they were ready to talk to about their identity and the secrets of it, 
were able to to widen that circle until we had these social shifts. And, you know, if we say, well, privacy doesn't matter because I don't have anything I do that I can't talk to people about, what we're really saying is that we believe this improbable idea that in 50 years our grandkids will say to us, tell me again, Grandpa, how it was in 2017 all of our social mores had finally uh, reached their pinnacle and we right. didn't have to change That's anything. Right. Otherwise, you have to believe that there are people around you that you love who are walking around with a secret in their breasts that they mm -hmm. can't tell you yet, who suffer every day because of it, and whose plight we will look back on as a like a ghastly miscarriage of justice. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have those spaces. And so, you know, this is one of the, the those things that beautifully illustrates the dual nature of technology. Use technology to let us form groups more efficiently, to find people like us more efficiently, and we can have enormous social progress. Use technology to take away our privacy, and you could take social progress and make it something that never happens. What do you like about writing about the future or about an imagined potential kind of future? Why does that appeal to you so much? Well, I feel like a lot of the fights that I have in my activist work are very abstract, but that by telling the stories of people living through the problems of technology that I worry about, what it would mean if strong cryptography was banned, what it would mean if you know, our networks were primarily turned into surveillance tools instead of tools for, for helping us improve our lives, that I can take some of that difficult to overcome complexity and abstractness and really flesh it out in a way that people can understand right in their guts instead of just in their heads. And that's a winning combination. Hmm. And how do you do that in the world that you imagine in, in this new book, Walkway? Um, I just want you to talk about that a little bit because these issues of morality and social standards that we've been talking about obviously factor in as well as the big one, uh, wealth inequality. So in Walkaway, you know, the wealth disparity has allowed both the simple economic injustice and the, 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 the falling away of whole generations of potential workers into a kind of like demimond of uh, semi-homelessness and economic precarity and being sucked into these uh, investment bubbles. And so it's creating this alternate society and the alternate society of, of like bohemians and walkaways it's pretty stable until they take a step too far because one of the projects that the super rich are working for, I call them the Zodas, they're, they're like after Giganaires and, and Heptanaires and, <laughs> and, and whatever, they're, they're Zodanaires. So the Zodanaires are working on practical immortality. They're, they're trying to get people to right. figure out how to let them live forever Which by Which is body. not so far from the yeah. folks in Silicon Valley. It's certainly a project that when you get rich enough, you start thinking about, right? right? Yeah. Uh, what know, else can you do with your money? But you have to be around to enjoy it. I mean, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? Yeah, yeah, you can't take it with you, no. so you don't have to go, maybe. So when the scientists who are working on that project realize that their patrons have made them complicit in the speciation of the human race, where the super rich become like infinitely prolonged men as gods, and everyone else becomes a mayfly disappearing in their rearview mm -hmm. mirror, they steal the secret of immortality, and they, they take it to walk away land with them. And then that triggers the all-out war by the super rich, whose elite panic at the thought of spending the rest of eternity with us basically means that this, this sideshow can no longer be tolerated, and out come the Hellfire missiles. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with science fiction writer Cory Doctorow. His latest novel is Walk Away. Uh, so 
when people read this book, is there something that you hope they think about what's happening today? Yeah, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. You know, they they the um, which makes complete sense. Sure, sure, of they, course. You know, optimistic you know, disaster. Yeah, novel. well, so disasters are inevitable, right? Like, even if you have this extremely well-designed, well-put-together civilization, you're still going to have belligerent neighboring states or rising seas or microbes that mutate out of control or, you know, horrible superstorms. And so it's what you do afterwards that decides whether you're living through a disaster or a catastrophe. If you pull together, then that's fine. If you turn on each other, then that's terrible. And, you know, they say that there are two plots, man versus man and man versus nature. And I think that a lot of writers in the pulp tradition, which I'm proud to say I work in as a science fiction writer, they like to have both. You know, the storms come and then civilization collapses. It's a two for one. And um, this gives us this largely false intuition that what people do in times of disasters turn on each other. The reality is that people really rise to the occasion. I was really influenced by this book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell that's all about the the real history of things we remember as these descents into barbarism where, as a historian, she examined these first-person contemporaneous accounts of what people actually experienced during Katrina mm. when they were all penned up in the dome and, and in Haiti after the earthquake. And what she found is that, while there were, you know, Blackwater mercenaries sniping at people who were allegedly looting, what there wasn't any evidence of were, like, the rapes in the, in the dome that, mm-hmm. that just turned out to be a kind of libel on, on Brown and Port people that was both the reason for penning them up and and then the reason for keeping them penned up. And so what I wanted to to do was, on the one hand, see what kind of narrative juice could be squeezed out of the idea, not that after a disaster we turn on each other, but that after a disaster, one of the real problems is figuring out how people that you fundamentally agree with but can't or are on the same side as but can't agree with how you resolve that, because that's a way harder problem, and it's a way more dramatic problem, right? Fighting with your enemies is easy. Fighting with your friends is hard. You know, all the people who have their bug-out bags and are ready to go to the hills when things go wrong, those people will not help things get right again. No one, you know, when the when the power goes out and you run for the hills, I can tell you one thing for sure, you're not going to be one of those people who helps the power come back on. It's interesting. I don't know if this has always been true, but you do see when you watch cable news now ads for like you know food pouches that you eat when you're like you know it's the end times and stuff and uh you know or when some huge natural uh, catastrophe happens or a or man-made catastrophe i guess i don't know if like 30 years ago there, there were those kinds of advertisements but this does seem to be both like i was saying in fiction and in non Something that seems to be on people's minds. Well, it's one thing to like, so I live in Los Angeles, so I have a 50-gallon drum of water behind the house, and we have some flashlights and some spare freeze-dried food, but we have enough for the neighbors, right? And we also have a freezer full of stuff that if things went wrong, we we would fire up the barbecue and we'd feed the neighbors, right? And we'd hope that they'd do the same for us. It's another thing to run for the hills. And I, I think 30 years ago, we were close enough to the Cold War that there probably were a lot of people with basements full of canned goods. And it's really the sense of what happens when when the lights go out, not whether the lights will go out, that, that matters. You know, if you think your neighbor is coming over with a covered dish, 
then you won't greet them with a shotgun. But if you think your neighbor is coming over with a shotgun, then you might go over and shoot them before they get to your house. And really, that's the... I was reading about the Titanic, and half the seats on those light boats were empty because the people in them were convinced that they started letting the swimmers in, that they'd overwhelm them, and they didn't wow. let anyone in, right? It's, it's really a matter of what your theory of other humans is. And, you know, there's a, it is profoundly statistical illiterate to believe that you and all your friends are reasonably decent people, but 99.9% .9 of people are bastards, right? If that's really the case, then, like, how is it that you got so lucky that you only ever met the people who were reasonable, if flawed human beings, and not the 99.9% .9 of people who are bastards? Really, most of us are and know representative samples of humanity. Cory Doctorow is co-editor of the website Boing Boing. His latest novel is Walk Away. Corey, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we've got more about Cory Doctorow's books, as well as other coverage of why we're in this moment when dystopian TV shows and literature and movies have caught fire. That's at innovationhub.org. 